morning. Great to see you. If you get out early enough, you can take your run around the block and see the moon go down, the sun come up. It's a real joy. Big pot of gold out there this morning. Gentlemen, we are studying the book of Galatians, in case you forgot from some time ago. And we are beginning with chapter 2 today. I'm going to ask you to turn there as we look at these first 10 verses. And you know that the apostle is dealing with a life and death threat to the gospel. And as he deals with this threat, he has to deal with a concomitant threat to his own apostolic authority because those who are opposing his particular brand of religion are now going to question his credentials. And he, in order to defend the message that he delivers, he has to defend his own ministry, his own authority as an apostle. And it's the same way today. These, these battles go on and on. If someone doesn't like your religious perspective, they're going to find all kinds of reasons to sow seeds of doubt. And they're going to find ways to undermine the credibility of your perspective. That's just fallen human nature. We're looking for the loopholes. And that's exactly what's happening to Paul. So he takes on a life and death struggle, not only for the gospel of, of our acceptance before God purely upon the performance of another on our behalf. That's the heart of the message he's defending as opposed to our acceptance before God because of a combination, a combination of things, including our performance. But now he's also defending the fact that this gospel really is God's idea and God's gospel. And Paul is a faithful communicator of that divine gospel. That's what's going on. And Galatians is so wonderful because, uh, as we'll see, it, 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 these six chapters are broken out into three categories. The first two uh, largely deal with the authority for what Paul is saying. What gives Paul the authority to say this? What makes him think that he's right and everybody else is wrong? What makes you think you're right and everybody else who disagrees with you is wrong? Where does your authority rest? That's the first two chapters. Then the next two chapters, and there's slosh over here, are dealing largely with the question of how am I justified before God? And there's the heart of the gospel of justification by faith. Then the latter two chapters is, so what? How then do I live life in view of these things? That the Bible is God's word, the gospel is divinely given, the gospel is my justification based on my trust in Jesus Christ alone, then what difference does this make in my sanctification? That's how the whole thing is laid out. And we're coming toward the end of his arguments now about his own apostolic authority. Now, what the opponents are basically saying, I'm giving you this background so that as we even read the text, you see why Paul says what he's saying. Here's the thrust of what they were saying these Judaizers. And Judaizers are merely uh, folks who come from a Jewish background who say they believe the gospel, who in one sense believe in Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection, but who are saying you can't really be a faithful follower of Christ and you really can't be a son of God unless you not only take Christ but you keep the Jewish traditions, the ones that are at the core of the Jewish life including circumcision. So for men, this is a big issue we're dealing with here, you Gentiles. And, uh, I mean, it's one thing to be circumcised when you're an infant out of the womb, but when you're an old man, that's another matter. So this is big-time stuff here we're dealing with. 
But it's big time stuff to Paul because it's messing with the core of the gospel, not because it's painful. But what the Judaizers are saying is that, listen, this man Paul has some of the truth, but he's basically off. And he is not in keeping with the apostles in Jerusalem, and they're the big kahunas. They're the ones who really establish what orthodoxy is, and Paul is not in line with them. Paul got his gospel from them, they're saying, and then he went off and he customized it for his Gentile mission. But he has abandoned the core things that they're teaching. Now, that's what they were saying. So you'll notice some nuances in Paul's argument. Be looking for those as we read through. He's, he's now talking to a church who is hearing from these Judaizers that the one who evangelized them is basically off. Just kind of like a, a Presbyterian, you know? <laughs> it's got a lot of the truth, but just off in a few ways, you know? Left orthodoxy. That's the way... I'm just teasing. I started to say name another one of you, but I knew you'd get mad at me. So, But it's more than just denominationalism. Basically, the Judaizers is saying that Paul has struck a core doctrine, and he is now a heretic in a core doctrine. That's what they're saying about Paul. And Paul now is saying just the opposite about them. So now he's going to show his relationship to the big guys in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John. He's going to show his relationship to them. And he's going to show both his independence and his consistency with them. And his independence comes from the fact that his message did not come from them. It came from God. But you're also going to see how he shows his consistency with them. Now, that's his argument. And we'll see how this applies to us in modern day life in just a few moments. But let's look, first of all, 2,000 years ago, what was going on so that we can understand the basic truth that's coming to us today. And then we'll apply it in our own day. Let's look then at... Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be Pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen. Okay, gentlemen, I'm sorry about the outlines. I know some of you can't think without an outline in front of you. 
why don't you just create your own? You just have to write a little bit more and I'll slow down a little bit. Now, what I'd like for us to do is notice in this text that really Paul is going to use three, three elements of this debate that he's going to press. He has three fronts he's pressing on this argument. He's going to talk about his gospel. He's going to talk about his gospel companions. He's going to talk about his gospel ministry. His gospel message, his gospel companions, and his gospel ministry. We're going to see how that's the same story we've got today. And in some ways, it's the same sort of three fronts that we're fighting today in terms of believing the truth and advancing the truth wherever we are. We're both on defense and offense all the time. And you know that uh, some football coaches will say, you know, the key to a good defense is a good offense. Some will say the good key to a good offense is a good defense. Well, the key to one or the other is both. The key to winning is both. There, there you go. That's why you put it together. And the key to being a mature Christian man is both. You must be able to sense untruth when you hear it, and you must be able to address an attack when you get it, and then you have, to, you have to be thinking about how can I advance and persuade and serve people around me with the gospel. So you're always on defense and offense. And you, have to have a, you have to have a good team for both. Now let's begin with verses 1 and 2 where Paul is talking about the gospel message. And here's what he says. The Gentile gospel is the only gospel. He's saying the Gentile gospel is not some aberration of the Jerusalem gospel. The gospel I share in, in, in uh, Iraq is not different from the gospel I share in America. And he's saying the gospel that our missionaries take around the world is not different from the gospel that's preached right here. Now, we know that there are some cultural differences. We know that there are some differences in the main issues, ethical and theological, that are addressed in different cultural locations. But it's the same core gospel, and that's, that's the point he's making. He had to prove two things, his independence and his consistency with others. And that's exactly what he's doing because people are basically saying that Paul and Peter are on different tracks. And if I can prove that there's an inconsistency between Paul and Peter, Peter's in Jerusalem ministering to Jews, Paul's in the Gentile world ministering to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Gentiles just means the nations. He's ministering to the nations, non-Jews. And if I can show there's a difference in there, well, then I can either disprove Paul or Peter or both of them. And now I'm not obligated to follow either one of them. What you get today more recently in the past 50 to 100 years is not a difference so much between Paul and Peter. It's between Paul and Jesus, don't you? People say, well, that's just Paul. And they try to drive a wedge between the Gospels where Jesus is quoted more heavily, forgetting, of course, that Matthew, Mark... Luke and John wrote those and the Pauline epistles. And therefore, we're going to discount all the ethical norms in the Pauline epistles. We're going to discount all the things we don't like in Paul's, uh, Paul's epistles. We'll just say, that's just Paul. That's more common today. Sometimes folks who are a little bit more nuanced will say, we'll put a wedge between Paul and James. And we'll get to that later in the latter part of chapter 2 here about uh, whether Paul is in conflict with James on the role of works in the Christian life. So you'll find that in your own mind there are doubts sometimes where you create a potential wedge between apostles or between an apostle and Jesus and you'll find an attack from the outside as well. Paul has the same thing. And he's showing that there is no wedge between him and Peter. 
and that they're both carrying the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's authoritative. Now, the first thing you get is Paul's gospel did not come from the Jerusalem brethren. In fact, he says, uh, I went up in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, I wasn't called on the carpet. These guys didn't send me out in the first place. And so they weren't calling me back on missionary furlough to check my message to be sure I'm okay. I didn't get my message from them. I went back there because God revealed it to me to go back. And I went back to report on the message I'm preaching that I didn't get from them. He's already explained to us in chapter 1 that he got the message from the Lord himself. So the first thing he's showing is his healthy independence from the Jerusalem brethren. Secondly, notice, Paul's gospel was heartily approved by the Jerusalem brethren. He says, I laid it before them, the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. And I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. So he says, I didn't just go to a big meeting. I went privately to the ones that these Judaizers are saying are the big kahunas who are the authoritative apostles. I went to those men in private. I've talked with them. We're not on different tracks. So 14 years later, I went and I shared my gospel in full with the the very people these people claim that I'm in disagreement with. Now you'll notice four times in this text, he speaks of those reputed to be leaders. It looks as though he's kind of throwing them under the bus, trashing them a little bit, those who are reputed to be leaders. You know, the big kahunas, the boss. He's not really diminishing the role of Peter, James, and John. What he's doing, he's trashing the Judaizers who are falsely elevating them at the expense of the Apostle Paul. So he's saying those that these guys are reputing to be the, the popes, I've talked to those people in private. I didn't get my gospel from them, but I've talked with them. So you see he's playing both sides of the street, which is the very thing that we do. We say, look, I got my gospel from the Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. I received my message from the Lord, and you did. We got it from the Lord. But at the same time, it's important that we show that we also got it from the church that I'm not in disagreement with the Apostles' Creed. I got it from the Lord in the Scriptures, but I've been taught by the Scriptures so that when I come to the Apostles' Creed, I'm in agreement with the councils of the church. I'm in agreement with the Apostles, with all of them. And that's, well, I'm not because I'm imperfect. But that's my aspiration is, first of all, to acknowledge that the gospel that I believe has come straight from heaven through human mediators in the Scriptures, but it's come from heaven to me. And that's the root of my faith. It's in the authority of God himself. It's very personal. That's the reason it's so passionate because we're under personal order from the Lord. And yet we do have a horizontal relationship. We do submit our thinking to other people. And anybody who says that they don't is falsely claiming to be an apostle. And I'm not an apostle. I'm way down the line. I don't have, I don't have access apart from the scriptures to infallible teaching on Redemption, I have it from the Scriptures. And to understand the Scriptures, I need a lot of help. I need you guys. I need my professors. I need the books on my shelves. I need people in other denominations. I I need a lot of people to teach me. So Paul's saying both. 
I got it from the Lord, and I also have a healthy relationship with the church, and I'm not in disagreement with my fellow apostles. So you'll see particularly, let's take a little side road, put your finger there, and let's see how this works out in Acts 15. Let me give you the timeline here for just a minute. Acts 15 is, is, seems to be in 49 A.D. Remember, the Lord was probably resurrected and ascended in 30 A.D. Uh, you know, he was 33 uh, years old, but it was probably 30 A.D. because of the, the, we're off on the year numbering. And Paul was probably converted in 33 A.D., a two or three years later. And then you have these 14 years he mentions here. Now, he's mentioned three years prior, but most scholars think the three years he mentions in chapter 1 are folded into these 14. So these 14 represent probably 14 years from his conversion until he went up to Jerusalem in the first trip. That first trip that he cites in Galatians chapter 1 seems to be the trip that's in Acts 9. And you notice he says in Acts 9 that he went immediately into Arabia. And we know that he evangelized Damascus where he was converted. He went into Arabia for three years, no doubt reflecting and studying his Bible, his Old Testament, to figure out what in the world does this Old Testament mean? I thought I knew this Old Testament. I don't know it at all because I don't know it in Christ. And if I don't know my Old Testament in Christ, I don't know my Old Testament. So it took him three years to relearn the Bible from a Christ-centered paradigm. It's not just enough to know your Bible. You have to know Christ. And Christ alone can interpret your Bible for you. He's the center of everything. Every Old Testament book is related to Christ. Paul had to learn that. After those three years, he goes to Jerusalem. That's Acts 9. And you remember he was taken out of Jerusalem after he stirred up some turmoil. We'll talk about that in a few moments. From there, he seems to go up to his hometown in Tarsus for another 11 years. In Acts 11, Barnabas goes up to Tarsus and gets Paul and brings him down to Antioch to teach the Antiochenes, who had a mixed church. Here, really, for the first time, you're getting a racially mixed church in a metropolitan area. And that racially mixed church becomes the staging ground for the mission to the entire world in Antioch, which ought to tell you something about the need for race relations. You ain't going anywhere until you embrace what you've got. You're not going to reach the world until you embrace what you've got. And let me take another. We're already on a side road. Let's take a side to a side here. (laughs) You're not going to reach the Hispanic world until you deal with the issue of immigration lovingly, compassionately, and wisely and in a long-term framework. If you think you're just going to send some people back and put the walls up without regard to split families and broken lives and, and, and un- not undoing all the damage that was done by the past 20 years policy, you've got another thought coming. So in order to deal with the world, you have to deal with your city and deal with your nation, deal with your neighborhood. And that's what they learned in Antioch. Barnabas went to get Saul and brought him down from Tarsus to deal with the Antiochenes. Now, we believe that Paul wrote this letter uh, shortly after that. Now, when he was in, let me back a minute. When he was in Antioch, he made another trip uh, to 
Jerusalem to carry a gift there with Barnabas. Uh, that was the second trip we believe he's talking about in Galatians 2. It's the Acts 11 trip. Okay? And that was 14 years later. So now we're, that trip had just happened toward the end of 46, early 47. Just after that trip, he writes this letter to Galatia. Just after that letter, we believe Acts 15 took place. That's the third trip to Jerusalem. And this is the first council of the church. All the apostles stream in, people from around the world, as many as they could get, to discuss the same question Paul is debating in Galatia. It's all about circumcision and whether Gentiles need to take on the old Jewish traditions, especially circumcision. Now, in Acts 15, you see how it was resolved in public at the first church council. And let's just look at the first few verses of Acts 15. And here we're told, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching. Now, Antioch is in Syria, not in Galatia. So this is another place. Paul's battling in Turkey. That's where Galatia is. This is down in Syria. Same problem. It was the same problem all over the world. Jews couldn't believe that people could get into heaven without circumcision. It was all over the world. And there's some things that sometimes conservative Christians can't believe people can get into heaven without doing certain things. And you go into other cultures and you realize, you know, we didn't really think that one through. Well, it happens here. So men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's pretty strong language. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenician Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted and so on. Then look at verse 5. Then some of the believers, this is in the council, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So you had Pharisee Christians is what you had here. Okay? stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, can you imagine how much? Much discussion. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from the lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God? By putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Now, here's Peter, who didn't want to evangelize Gentiles back in Acts chapter 10. And God gave him the vision, and then God made him go, and then God shocked him that Gentiles actually can receive the Holy Spirit. Peter has learned his lesson. It's interesting, isn't it? The very one that people claim Paul's in discord with at the council just the next year is the one who speaks in favor of what Paul is saying. Notice how important it is in leadership. Let's take another side to an aside. In leadership, 
if you're the one who's reputed to disagree and you come under conviction that the complainants are wrong and they're largely your buddies, they're Presbyterians, then it's the Presbyterian who should stand up and speak. Or if the complainants are Baptist and they're wrong and you're the Baptist, you should stand up as the Baptist and speak. Notice that's exactly what Peter did. How much good would it have done for Peter and Barnabas to speak up? They've already spoken. Now we need somebody on the other side to speak. And Peter represents the Jewish mission. And he makes it very clear and you get other speeches there. And then you'll notice the conclusion. They, uh, James says in verse 20, and James, the brother of Jesus now, was a big kahuna. And he says, instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, James is saying, this issue of circumcision, this is a signal issue. It's an issue of adding something to the gospel. We must not require it. But look, the gospels or the Bible is being taught in all these synagogues all over Europe and Asia. And it would be scandalous if we go in and start eating meat offered to idols and we eat meat strangled that was, where the animals were strangled, which is a big taboo. It will, it will scandalize all the synagogues and we'll lose the opportunity to preach the gospel there. And furthermore, with all the sexual immorality in the pagan world, we need to be sure that they know there's another standard in the Scriptures. Now, it's interesting. When Paul gets to Corinth, you find that this gets molded and shaped a little bit. You can look at his teaching on eating meat offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10. It doesn't seem to match perfectly here. That's because he's in a different culture. It's dominantly Roman rather than Jewish. The synagogue's not dominant in Corinth. The pagan presence is dominant. So he takes other issues there. But this was advice to those areas dominated by synagogues. And the council was pleased with this. And you can read on in Acts 15 and see that as Paul and Barnabas took that message back to the churches, they were, they were pleased They were at peace and they had unity, which is what councils ought to accomplish. Paul says that he was heartily approved by the Jerusalem brethren. And of course, the next year it was proven because the council agreed with the apostle Paul and showed that they were never actually as a group in fundamental disagreement. Paul goes to great lengths to be sure that we know there is only one gospel. You may not understand it, and I may not understand it, but there is only one. And if someone's trying to divide into two gospels, two religions, two, two ways up the mountain to the same God, uh, as some of you were here on Sunday morning, we were talking about First Timothy, uh, or rather Second Timothy, and Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, there's one God, and there's one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. There is no medium to God other than Jesus Christ. There's one medium. There's the gospel. Paul will defend it with his life. Now, secondly, look at verses 3 through 5. Not only is the Gentile gospel the only gospel, but Gentile companions are real brothers. Now, this is crucial. It's crucial that we understand it, that we understand that if we really believe the gospel then we really get a new family. If you really believe the gospel, you really get a new family. 
And I am concerned in the church of our own day where people are basically idolizing their own traditions, their own family backgrounds, their own customs. They've not challenged their own emotional attachments to things in their own family systems that sometimes are contrary to the gospel. But they won't attack them because they don't want to hurt grandpa's feelings or they don't want to upset their mother. Gentlemen, if that's the way you believe, then you've got your own religion and you, fortunately in this country, you have a right to it. And you ought to be respected no matter what you believe in this country. But you've just abandoned the gospel. If you really believe the gospel, you really get a new family. Uh, this uh, past week, I have an accountability group some of you know about. We meet once a year. That's what you call in-depth accountability. <laughs> we, we like to call it accountability, but it's, you know, of course it's not. You know, we, we only see each other once a year. But we ask each other questions that probably even our regular accountability partners don't ask us. Uh, and uh, we've been doing this for 25 years, so you don't get away with anything really in this group. Uh, one of us in our group is actually an outstanding historian of the Civil War era. So for 25 years, we've been talking about, nah, this is Harry Reeder at, at uh, Briarwood uh, Presbyterian in Birmingham. Harry, you just got to take us on your, your battlefield tour, you know, one of these days. So finally we did it this week. And just standing in, in, at Antietam, uh, the day when we lost more American soldiers than any day in our history, 23,000 young men died on one day. And you're sitting here looking at this bloody battlefield, the sunken road and all the rest, and thinking about how these young guys, you know, the, a lot of them were teenagers, some of, most of them in their early 20s, put their lives on the line, largely because of family and country and patriotic commitments, both, both directions, largely that. And there were core values associated with both sides, and believe me, we're not getting into discussion of that today. Uh, but both of them deeply rooted in their own soil. And here, of course, you have, you know, Lee making a, a, a move uh, into uh, northern ranks and on their territory, you know, and get there and up in Gettysburg. And you have people laying their lives down, 23,000. Then we go to Gettysburg, 53,000 in three days of fighting. And, of course, we're deeply concerned about the few thousand we've lost in Iraq and the hundreds and now thousands that we're losing in Afghanistan. But here, think about this, 23,000 and 53,000. And, of course, in the war, 600,000 on both sides. More lost than all of our other wars put together in four years. Why? Well, people were devoted to what they thought they believed and connected to their soil and their patriotic feelings for their state or and maybe in the other case it was the union. And yet, when we come to the church, where do we find people standing up with their, their life, willing to lay down their, their lives for their real family? And our real family are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And yet I find more men willing to shed their blood for their family customs, some of which are flat wrong, 
than they are to shed their blood, lay down their lives for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Something's wrong here. I want you to notice in Paul's life, he was committed to his nation. He was committed to his customs. He was willing to take other people's blood and shed his own before he got converted. And now that he's converted, he is laying down his life for the gospel, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the salvation of people he's not even met yet. Because when you believe the gospel, you really get a new family, a new land, new customs. And you have to make the switch to be sure that you're a man of character and integrity. That your life is newly rooted in the things that really matter. Well, let's look. And then, of course, you take that same athleticism. Some of, I mean, we have to be careful here, but even that sense of competition, all the things that God gives us by virtue of testosterone, take it, go into battle. And in this battle, you don't take other people's lives, you lay down your own. It takes more courage in this battle. But you take that same, the same gifts of being a man that God gives you, now you deploy them in a new battle for a new family. Now look at who Paul's friends are. He's got great friends. He's got Barnabas and Titus. He's got a lot of other friends all around the world. You'll see in his letters, he's always got friends. He's always associating. He's always teaming up with the family. He realizes that, yeah, he got his gospel from Jesus Christ, but so did a lot of other people. And we're in this together. You know, Vince Dooley, the great Georgia coach, said one of the keys to, to effective leadership is getting surrounded with quality men. And you know that in your business. You have to have quality men and women around you to be effective as a leader. Paul was expert at this. Barnabas, this tremendous encourager. If we go back to chapter 9, Paul's first visit in Jerusalem, who was with him? Barnabas. Who was convincing the other apostles that Paul was safe in Acts chapter 9? Barnabas. When Paul goes back in Acts chapter 11, who goes with him as a trusted man to take the church's wealth out of Antioch and give a cross-cultural gift to Jerusalem? Who is with him to be trusted? Barnabas. In the first place, when Paul is up in Tarsus, he's up there teaching and just kind of, it looks like he's off the world stage for 11 years. He's been converted, goes into Arabia, goes back to Jerusalem three years later. Then for 11 years, he goes to Tarsus. No missionary journeys. His name's not in the church chronicle. No one's writing about him, talking about him. He's on the shelf. Who goes and gets him 11 years later and pleads with him to come back to Antioch to minister to that that, uh, integrated church with Jews and Gentiles in it? Barnabas. Barnabas walks 100 miles. And he goes and sits down with Paul and convinces him that he's the right man for Antioch. A man who divests himself of his own pride so that he can put the right man in the right place. Barnabas goes to get Paul and brings him back to Antioch. And that's the kind of person Paul surrounds himself with. And you can tell Paul listens to Barnabas. He did what Barnabas said. Paul's the chief. He's the big cheese. But he listens to Barnabas. He surrounded himself with good people and then he listens to good people. It's, it's an important aspect of... It's a social implication of believing the gospel is that we're going to do life together in meaningful, mutually accountable relationships 
in the church of Jesus Christ. So this involves real people. And Paul goes with a real person to Jerusalem. Now, I want us to notice, first of all, A, Titus was received by the Jerusalem brothers. Part of Paul's argument is, look at Titus. Here's a young man I led to faith in Christ. He was a Gentile. He wasn't circumcised. And I take them... I take him with me to Jerusalem. You guys are saying you have to be circumcised to be Christians. Is that right? Or are you saying to the Galatians, isn't it right? These Judaizers are saying you have to be circumcised. Well, let me tell you about my friend Titus. And Paul intentionally took Titus. Do you think that was an accident? Paul is taking a scandal to Jerusalem with him. A guy who professes to be a believer who doesn't follow the customs of the mother church. Paul takes him, and Paul is able to say, I took him, and they did not require this man to be circumcised. Why are these Judaizers requiring you to be circumcised? So Paul takes good friends and builds family, and it's through personal relationships that sometimes we grasp the truth. I tell you, through my friendship with Taras Prestupa in Ukraine, I've learned a whole lot about the gospel, a whole lot about the Bible, a whole lot about the mission of Jesus Christ, and he does it very different. He's an old Russian. He does things differently than Americans do them. Through my friendship with Yoka von Amstel in Cambodia, dealing with the poor, watching her contextualize the gospel among very poor, illiterate people with AIDS everywhere, and watching her contextualize the gospel among the poor, I learned so much about the gospel, watching her work in her ministry in Cambodia. Well, we could go on and on, couldn't we? It's important to listen to brothers and sisters around the world. That's how we learn things. It's how we learn the gospel that's coming from God. It's taught to us through the church. And Paul was received, or rather Titus was received by the Jerusalem brothers. And Paul did this whole thing at great risk to himself. This is one of the points we need to take to heart, brethren. Paul, you know, later on in Acts 21, he takes a Gentile with him to Jerusalem during a festival season and they try to lynch Paul because they falsely accused that he had taken Trophimus into the temple area for Jews only and trespassed. And they they brought these charges against him. It wasn't true. But you take a Gentile to Jerusalem and try to foist him off as your brother, you could get lynched. I'm telling you something. When you receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive a new family. And if men are willing to die for kith and kin, out of understandable, nostalgic, cultural, historical reasons, we need to learn to die for one another. And especially when the gospel is going across one part of town to another or across one nationality to another, or across one denomination to another. We need to learn to stand across those boundaries and take the risks that come with it. That's exactly what Paul did, and you can see how he can now prove the gospel. One reason we have a hard time proving the gospel in Memphis is that those who don't believe the gospel are saying, well, what difference does it make? You all don't seem to be showing how there's one gospel around the world. You don't even show one gospel here with all the strife. 
It's the role of the church to demonstrate the gospel. Then it becomes, look here, it becomes a powerful argument. And those who believe together, Titus and Paul, Paul was circumcised. Titus and Paul can do it together. Now, you may be wondering, well, why didn't he have Timothy circumcised then? Here's why. It was for evangelistic reasons. Timothy was ministering with Paul to synagogues. And people do spy out your privacy. And they find out if you're marked. And that's what he says here. They spy this out. And they found out that Titus wasn't marked. He was uncircumcised. And in those days, it was easy to spy a man out. A little easier than it is today. You know? You probably get something in the mouth, you know, kicked out of the bathroom anyway if you do that. But they, they spied on each other. And Timothy would be spied on by unbelieving Jews. And so you remove an unnecessary offense. So why do I have to have my freedom? Paul says, I'm free to do certain things, but I don't always use my freedom because it doesn't, it does, it's not expedient. It doesn't advance the gospel. Timothy was circumcised to advance the gospel among Jewish unbelieving people. But here, Titus was certainly not circumcised because it was the blooming church. Not the unbelievers, it was the church that was demanding it in contradiction to the gospel. And when it threatened the gospel, Paul would both have you circumcised or not have you circumcised depending upon which way advanced the gospel. And in Timothy's case, it advanced the gospel to be circumcised. In Titus' case, it advanced the gospel, the true gospel, not to be circumcised. You'll see how these nuances come out in Paul's life. But look at the, the next verses where Paul teaches us about these false brethren and we learn that false brethren were rejected by the apostles. He says they had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. In that church, you really didn't want to go to the bathroom. That's about the way I guess you can size it up. And look at this, verse 5. He says, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. So he's saying... These false brethren, he doesn't say, I rejected them. He said, we rejected them. So Paul was able to say the church rejected those who were dividing people according to religious customs, family backgrounds. And we strongly rejected that. Notice how he rejected it. First of all, without a moment's hesitation. He says to them, we did did not yield submission even for a moment. Without hesitation, he says, we did not give in to them for a moment. Not for a moment. And I know the hesitations that come. You know, one of the big struggles in the Civil War was stragglers. You know, I mean, you're sitting there the night before this battle and you're going to go in Napoleonic formation and have volleys of musket fire and cannonade just dropping men right and left. I mean, some of these... Some of these uh, Regiments, you know, would have 800 people in them. By the time they got through with the battle, there were 80 people. I mean, you've got, and these were all neighborhoods. These regiments were formed in neighborhoods. You know, the city of Memphis would get a regiment or some town in Georgia or, or in Maine would get their townsmen together. So it's your neighbors who are dropping around you right and left. And of course you hesitate. Of course the night before makes you throw up. But you must train yourself to go forward. And when you believe the gospel, you take on whatever it is that opposes the gospel in your own heart to begin with, without a moment's hesitation. Paul says, I 
I'd already decided I'll die with Titus. I'll die with my brother, no matter what is said. And then look at why he does it. Number two, under the false brethren, for the preservation of the gospel. Notice in verse 5 he says, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. What he's saying is, my behavior with Titus preserved the gospel. Our behavior with each other in this city preserves the gospel. And when everybody is just simply playing their favorites, when everybody's going along their racial bias or their socioeconomic bias or their football team bias, I mean, it's, it's silly how things can divide people. Then you are not preserving the gospel. You're eroding the gospel. And Paul realized that. So Gentile companion is a real companion, a real brother when they trust in Jesus Christ. Now, thirdly, let's talk about the mission in 10 minutes. The Gentile mission is God's mission. Paul says, first of all, A, there are no additions to Paul's gospel. In verse 6, he says, as for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Does that sound like 1 Samuel? Those men added nothing to my message. So Paul says there are no additions. And gentlemen, there must not be any additions to your gospel. And some of you are challenged by that. Some of you may have a Christian church background where you really can't get to heaven unless you're baptized. Sorry. That's an addition. I'm not saying you shouldn't be baptized. I teach here that people should be baptized. But you just added to the gospel. Watch yourself. Paul says there are no additions to the gospel he was preaching. B, there are no differences in Paul's ministry. He says in verse 7, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. So there's no difference between Paul and Peter. There's no difference between Paul and Jesus on the gospel. There's no difference between Paul and James on the gospel. They were addressing different issues. So different things or aspects of the gospel come out. And it's in our misinterpretation of what they're saying that makes it appear as though they're contradicting. They're just simply addressing different issues. In one case with James, he's addressing antinomianism, people who are dropping off the law. They're they're anti the law. So James is saying you can't, be a follower of Christ without repentance, without obeying the law. Paul's dealing with people who want to add to the gospel, who are very legalistic. And he's saying, you can't be saved if you're trusting your own performance on the law. They're in agreement, but they're addressing different issues. Paul says there's no, there are no additions to Paul's gospel and there are no differences in Paul's ministry. Now let's look in the moments we have at four aspects of this in our text. First of all, they have the same gospel in verse 7. They saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel, the sacred gospel, the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles, just as Peter was. So they have the same gospel. It's all about Jesus Christ. And if we are receiving the gospel and advancing it, our gospel is fundamentally the same as real believers anywhere around the world. Secondly, they have the same spirit. Look how he puts it in verse 8. He says, For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, 
was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Gentlemen, can't we agree that, I mean, you Presbyterians, can't you agree that there are some Baptists who are really leading a lot of people to Jesus Christ and teaching them the Bible and helping them put their families together and love their children? Can we agree that we, we have the same spirit and that that makes us brothers and sisters and human denominations that came about uh, within the past 500 years and Baptists and Presbyterians began to split off just after the Reformation? Can't we agree that those human organizational differences among us are transcended by the family of the church and the gospel? Of course. He says we have the same spirit. You can see the, wor- the Lord's at work in Peter's life. He preaches to Cornelius' household and the Spirit falls on them. They speak in tongues and they repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is working miracles in Turkey and leading people who are hardened opponents of the gospel to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and lay down their lives for him. Can't you agree that the Lord's at work? And yet when we get in our little parishes, we end up being jealous and suspicious of people in other parishes around the world. Let's be careful. It's got to be on the gospel. There are differences that are vital differences. Paul's taking one on here. He says, if anyone comes to you with the gospel other than the one I came with, may he be accursed. May he go to hell. May they mutilate themselves, he says. We'll get to that later. I mean, he has some strong words for people who deny the gospel. But when we believe in the core of the gospel, we must learn to act like family. We have the same gospel and the same spirit. Then thirdly, notice in verse 9, the same grace. He says, James, Peter, and John those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. When what? They recognized the grace given to me. What a beautiful statement. They recognized the grace given to Paul. Let me ask you, can you defend the gospel in part by saying, don't you recognize the grace of God given to me? How did they recognize the grace given to Paul? Well, think about it. Paul was a very proud man. Just look at Philippians chapter 3 and look at the diplomas on his wall, religious diplomas, academic diplomas. He really thought he was hot stuff. Actually, he was hot stuff. He was brilliant, very fine student, major accomplishments in religion. He probably would have gotten the Templeton Prize for religion. He had all this stuff on his wall. And he says, now I consider that literally crap. Because all that matters to me is knowing Christ. And they saw his pride broken. And you couldn't spend 10 minutes without, with Paul as strongly as he believed and as brave and courageous as he was. You couldn't spend 10 minutes with, uh, with him without knowing that his pride had been broken. How about my pride? How about yours? Is the grace of God and the grace of the gospel evident? Is your life proving what you believe? Not perfectly. But directionally, is your life a proof of what you profess? Would people in your workplace know there's something different? Paul says, they recognize the grace of God given to me. What else do they recognize? Paul was obviously a very angry man. He breathed out hateful vengeance against the church. Very angry man. And they found, of course, he's still a visceral man, a very passionate man, but he's no longer an angry man. It was under control. They couldn't help but recognize this man had been to angry, uh, anger control seminars. <laughs> he had gotten a hold of himself. 
they couldn't help but recognize that where before Paul was destroying other people, now he was being destroyed for their sakes. They couldn't help but see that in him. They recognized the grace of God in him. They couldn't help but recognize, the, Peter, James, and John that is, that when they got into discussion about how the gospel is going around the world and whether circumcision is required or not required, they couldn't help but notice that Paul was a man who disagreed agreeably unless you took your stand against the core of the gospel and then he would be your, your opponent. They couldn't help but notice that about the Apostle Paul, that he was gentle and compassionate and kind. And he wasn't looking for reasons to, to divide himself off from other people. Is that true in our lives? Do people in your workplace see that about yourself, that there is a kindness as well as a conviction? There's a love as well as a commitment to the truth that commends the gospel in this man's life. He says they had the same grace. And lastly, notice they had the same concerns. He says that when he reports about his meeting in uh, Jerusalem, he says all they asked, verse 10, was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now what's really ironic is that on this visit to Jerusalem, this particular visit he's talking about, remember I said that's the Acts 11 visit. Now you can go to Acts 11 and look in verses 27 through 30 and you'll see this was a time of famine in Jerusalem and the Christians were under oppression and they were poor. They were very Jewish. Very Jewish. The Antiochene Christians... Uh, were very cosmopolitan. And although they had a significant Jewish population, they were really international. They were Gentiles. It was fundamentally a Gentile church. And what you have in Acts chapter 11 is the first recorded case in history of a gift being given cross-culturally, voluntarily. There's, uh, there's no record anywhere that someone in Rome sent a gift to Egypt or that someone in Egypt sent a gift to, to Achaia. You don't, you don't find that anywhere in recorded history. Here's the first time you have a cross-cultural charitable gift being given. It's the beginning of the church's expression for the poor around the world. Here is what Peter, James, and John were saying, and here's what Paul is saying. You cannot receive this gospel unless your life and your possessions began to belong to the poor, especially the poor in the church. And there are poor in the church around the world. It's our job to find out who they are, what their needs are, and how we can address those needs. The secularists, if you read Jeffrey Sachs' book, The End of Poverty, that he wrote four or five years ago, which was, and Jeffrey Sachs is a professor at Columbia, formerly at Harvard, has studied in depth a variety of extreme extremely poor countries and has written a lot about it. He says this. Now, he's, he's, he's not a Christian. He's naive about the cussedness of evil, I think. But basically, from a purely economic analysis, if the developed countries gave 0.2% of their GDP for the relief of extreme poverty, we could eliminate it by 2025. And the U.S. is giving nowhere close to 0.2%. Now, that's about the state. Let's talk about the church. 
What about the church? We're giving less of our income in our local churches now to the cause of the relief of the poor and evangelizing the lost around the world than we were during the Great Depression. By a long shot. By a long shot. We live in a materialistic world. And instead of using our material to relieve the poor, we've actually just aggregated more of it for ourselves. And I really believe this time we're living in is a very instructive moment. And I'm sorry for those of you who are hurting the most over it. But it needs to get all of our attention. This is not a time to pull back. I believe it's a time in God's providence to say, look guys, you can get along with far less than you thought you could. And let's learn this lesson well. And let's start living on less than you have to live on. Maybe you need to sell that house and go into a smaller place. Maybe you need to hold on to that car for a little longer. Maybe you need to find some other ways to cut down your vacations. Whatever it is. But let's realize that when you receive the gospel, you have an interest in the poor. Period. No exceptions. Paul says that's the very thing we intended to do. As a matter of fact, on this very trip, we took the largest gift in the history of the world to help the poor. So we're in agreement, Paul says, because we believe the gospel, that we get a new family, we get a new mission, and we get a new Savior who's Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we pray for ourselves, first of all, that you help us to believe and live out the real gospel. Keep us this morning from thinking about the sins of somebody else. Help us to deal with you ourselves this morning. Help us to find the repentance we need to find because we're in love, not because we're afraid or feeling guilty. We pray that you would move us by the power of the love of the gospel to be men who know who our family is, we know what the truth is, we know who our Savior is, we know what our job is. Help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.